are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. Sapphire Planet. Amelia Mary Earhart, born July 24, 1897, disappeared 1937 was a noted American aviation pioneer and author. Earhart was the first woman to receive the U.S. Distinguished Flying Cross, awarded for becoming the first aviatrix to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. She set many other records wrote best-selling books about her flying experiences and was instrumental in the formation of the 99s, an organization for female pilots. Earhart joined the faculty of the Purdue University Aviation Department in 1935 as a visiting faculty member to counsel women on careers and help inspire others with her love for aviation. She was also a member of the Nationals Woman's Party and an early supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment. During an attempt to make a circumnavigational flight of the globe in 1937, in a Purdue-funded Lockheed Model 10 Electra, Earhart disappeared over the Central Pacific Ocean near Howland Island. Fascination with her life, career, and disappearance continues to this day.
Amelia Mary Earhart, daughter of the German-American Samuel Edwin Stanton Earhart and Amelia Amy Otis Earhart, was born in Acton, Kansas, in the home of her maternal grandfather, Alfred Gideon Otis, a formal former federal judge, president of the Actinson Savings Bank, and a leading citizen in Actinson. Amelia was the second child of the marriage after an infant stillborn in August 1896. Alfred Otis had not initially favored the marriage and was not satisfied with Edwin's progress as a lawyer. Earhart was named, according to family custom, after her two grandmothers, Amelia Josephine Harris and Mary Wells Patton. From an early age, Earhart, nicknamed Mealy, was the ringleader, while younger sister, two years her junior, Grace Muriel Earhart, nicknamed Pidge, acted as the dutiful follower. Both girls continued to answer to their childhood nicknames well into adulthood. Their upbringing was unconventional, since Amy Earhart did not believe in molding her children into nice little girls. Meanwhile, their maternal grandmother disapproved of the bloomers worn by Amy's children, and though although Earhart liked the freedom they provided, she was aware that other girls in the neighborhood did not wear them. A spirit of adventure seemed to abide in the Earhart children, with the pair setting off daily to explore their neighborhood. As a child, Earhart spent long hours playing with Pidge, climbing trees, hunting rats with a rifle, and belly slamming her sled downhill. Although this love of the outdoors and rough-and-tumble play was common to many youngsters, some biographers have characterized the young Earhart as a tomboy. The girls kept worms, moths, and a tree toad in a growing collection gathered in their outings. In 1904, with the help of her uncle, she cobbled together a homemade ramp fashioned after a roller coaster she had seen on a trip to St. Louis and secured the ramp to the roof of the family tool shed. Earhart's well-documented first flight ended dramatically. She emerged from the broken wooden box that had served as a sled with a bruised lip torn dress, and a sense of exhilaration. She exclaimed, Oh, Pidge, it's just like flying. 
Although there had been some missteps in his career up to that point, in 1907, Edwin Earhart's job as a claims officer for Rock Island Railroad led to a transfer to Des Moines, Iowa. The next year, at age 10, Earhart saw her first aircraft at the Iowa State Fair in Des Moines. Her father, Edwin, tried to interest her and her sisters in taking a flight. One look at the rickety old flyver was enough for Earhart, who promptly asked if they could go back to the merry-go-round. She later described the biplane as a thing of rusty wire and wood and not at all interesting. The two sisters, Amelia and Muriel, she went by her middle name from her teens on, remained with their grandparents in Actinson, while their parents moved into new, smaller quarters in Des Moines. During this period, Earhart received a form of homeschooling together with her sister from her mother and a governess. She later recounted that she was exceedingly fond of reading and spent countless hours in the large family library. In 1909, when the family was finally reunited in Des Moines, the Earhart children were enrolled in public school for the first time, with Amelia Earhart entering the seventh grade at the age of 12. While the family's finances seemingly improved with the acquisition of a new house and even the hiring of two servants, it soon became apparent Edwin, Amelia's father, was an alcoholic. Five years later, in 1914, he was forced to retire and although he attempted to rehabilitate himself through treatment, he was never reinstated at the Rock Island Railroad. At about this time, Earhart's grandmother, Amelia Otis, died suddenly, leaving a substantial estate that placed her daughter's share in trust, fearing that Edwin's drinking would drain the funds. The Otis house and all of its contents was auctioned. Earhart was heartbroken and later described it as the end of her childhood. In 1915, after a long search, Earhart's father found work as a clerk at the Great Northern Railway in St. Paul, Minnesota, where Earhart entered Central High School as a junior. Edwin, Ed Earhart's father, applied for a transfer to Springfield, Missouri in 1915, but the current claims officer reconsidered his retirement and demanded his job back, leaving the elder Earhart with nowhere to go. Facing another clematimous move 
Amy Earhart took her children to Chicago, where they lived with friends. Earhart made an unusual condition in the choice of her next schooling. She canvassed nearby high schools in Chicago to find the best science program. She rejected the high school nearest her home when she complained that the chemistry lab was just like a kitchen sink. She eventually was enrolled in Hyde Park High School, but spent a miserable semester where a yearbook caption captured the essence of her unhappiness. It showed a picture of her with the caption, Amelia Earhart, the girl in brown who walks alone. Earhart graduated from High Park High School in 1916. Throughout her troubled childhood, she had continued to aspire to a future career. She kept a scrapbook of newspaper clippings about successful women in predominantly male-oriented fields, including film direction and production, law, advertising, management, and mechanical engineering. She began junior college at Agance School in Rydell, Pennsylvania, but did not complete her program. During Christmas vacation in 1917, Earhart visited her sister in Toronto. World War I had been raging, and Earhart saw the returning wounded soldiers. After receiving training as a nurse's aide from the Red Cross, she began work with the Volunteer Aid Detachment at Spadania Military Hospital. Her duties included preparing food in the kitchen for patients with special diets and handing out prescribed medications in the hospital's dispensary. When the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic reached Toronto, Earhart was engaged in an arduous nursing duties, including night shifts at the military hospital. She became a patient herself, suffering from pneumonia and maxillary sinitis. She was hospitalized in early November 1918, owing to pneumonia and discharged in December 1918, about two months after the illness had started. Her sinus-related symptoms were pain and pressure around one eye and copious mucus drainage via the nostrils and throat. In the hospital, in the pre-antibiotic era, she had painful minor operations to wash out the affected maxillary sinus. But these procedures were not successful and Earhart subsequently suffered from worsening headache attacks. Her convalescence lasted nearly a year, which she spent at her sister's home 
in Northampton, Massachusetts. She passed the time by reading poetry, learning to play the banjo, and studying mechanics. Chronic sinusitis was to significantly affect Earhart's flying and activities later in life. And sometimes even on the airfield, she was forced to wear a bandage on her cheek to cover a small drainage tube. At about that time, with a young woman friend, Earhart visited an airfield held in conjunction with the Canadian National Exposition in Toronto. One of the highlights of the day was a flying exhibition put on by a World War I ace. The pilot overhead spotted Earhart and her friend who were watching from an isolated clearing and dived at them. I am sure, he said to himself, watch me make them scamper, she said. Earhart stood her ground as the aircraft came close. I did not understand it at the time, she said, but I believe that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. By 1919, Earhart prepared to enter Smith College, but changed her mind and enrolled at Columbia University, signing up for a course in medical studies, among other programs. She quit a year later to be with her parents, who had reunited in California. In Long Beach, on December 28, 1920, Earhart and her father visited an airfield where Frank Hawks, who later gained fame as an air racer, gave her a ride that would forever change Earhart's life. By the time I had gotten two or three hundred feet off the ground, she said, I knew I had to fly. After that 10-minute flight, that cost her father $10, she immediately became determined to learn to fly, working at a variety of jobs, including photographer, truck driver, and sonographer at the local telephone company. she managed to save $1,000 for flying lessons. Earhart had her first lessons beginning on January 3rd, 1921 at Kinner Field near Long Beach, California. But to reach the airfield, Earhart took a bus to the end of the line and then walked four miles Earhart's mother also provided part of the $1,000 stake against her better judgment. Earhart's teacher was Anita Netta Snook, 
a pioneer female aviator who used a surplus Curtis JN4 Canuck for training. Earhart arrived with her father and a singular request. I want to fly. Will you teach me? Earhart's commitment to flying required her to accept the frequently hard work and rudimentary conditions that accompanied early aviation training. She chose a leather jacket, but aware that other aviators would be judging her, she slept in it for three nights to give the jacket a worn look. To complete her image transformation, she also cropped her hair short in the style of other female flyers. Six months later, Earhart purchased a second-hand bright yellow Kinner Airster biplane, which she nicknamed the Canary. On October 22, 1922, Earhart flew the Airster to an altitude of 14,000 feet, setting a world record for female pilots. On May 15, 1923, Earhart became the 16th woman to be issued a pilot's license by the Fédération Aéronautique International in France. According to the Boston Globe, Earhart was one of the best women pilots in the United States. Although this characterization has been disputed by aviation experts and experienced pilots in the decades since. She was an intelligent and competent pilot, but hardly a brilliant aviator, whose early efforts were categorized as inadequate by more seasoned flyers. One serious miscalculation occurred during a record attempt that had ended with her spinning down through a cloud bank only to emerge at 3,000 feet off the ground. Experienced pilots admonished her. Suppose the clouds had closed in until they touched the ground. You would have been killed. Earhart was chagrined, yet acknowledged her limitations as a pilot and continued to seek out existence throughout her career from various instructors. By 1927, without any serious incident, she had accumulated nearly 500 hours of solo flying, a very respectable achievement. Throughout this period, her grandmother's inheritance, which was now administered by her mother, was constantly depleted until it finally ran out, following a disastrous investment in a failed gypsum mine. 
consequently, with no immediate prospects for recouping her investments in flying, Earhart sold the canary, as well as a second Kinner, and bought a yellow Kissel Speedster two-passenger automobile, which she named the Yellow Peril. Simultaneously, Earhart experienced an exacerbation of her old sinus problem as her pain worsened and in early 1924 she was hospitalized for another sinus operation, which was, again, unsuccessful. After trying her hand at a number of unusual ventures, including setting up a photography company, Earhart set out in a new direction. Following her parents' divorce in 1924, she drove her mother in the Yellow Peril on a transcontinental trip from California with stops throughout the West and even a jaunt up to Calgary, Alberta, Canada. The meandering tour eventually brought the pair to Boston, Massachusetts, where Earhart underwent another sinus procedure, this operation being more successful. After recuperation, she returned for several months to Columbia University, but was forced to abandon her studies and any further plans for enrolling at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology because her mother could no longer afford the tuition fees and all the associated costs at MIT. Soon after, she found employment first as a teacher, then as a social worker in 1925 at Denison House, living in Medford, Massachusetts. When Earhart lived in Medford, she maintained her interest in aviation, becoming a member of the American Aeronautical Society's Boston chapter and was eventually elected its vice president. She flew out of Denison Airport, later the Naval Air Station Squanum, in Quincy, Massachusetts, and helped finance its operation by investing a small sum of money. Earhart also flew the first official flight out of Denison Airport in 1927, as well as acting as a sales representative for Kinner Airplanes in the Boston area. Earhart wrote local newspaper columns promoting flying, and as her local celebrity grew, she laid out the plans for an organization devoted to female flyers.
After Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927, Amy Phepps' guests expressed interest in being the first woman to fly or be flown across the Atlantic Ocean. After deciding the trip was too perilous for her to undertake, she offered to sponsor the project, suggesting they find another girl with the right image. While at work one afternoon in April 1928, Earhart got a phone call from Captain Hilton H. Rayleigh, who asked her, would you like to fly the Atlantic? The project coordinators, including book publisher and publicist George P. Putnam, interviewed Earhart and asked her to accompany pilot Wilmer Stoltz and co-pilot mechanic Lewis Gordon on the flight, nominally as a passenger, but with the added duty of keeping the flight log. She enthusiastically said yes. The team departed Tresipi Harbor, Newfoundland in a Fokker F7B3M on June 17, 1928, landing at Bury Port, Wales, United Kingdom, exactly 20 hours and 40 minutes later. Since most of the flights was on instruments, and Earhart had no training for this type of flying, she did not pilot the aircraft. When interviewed after landing, she said, Stoltz did all the flying, had to. I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. She added, maybe someday I'll try it alone. While in England, Earhart is reported as receiving a rousing welcome on June 19, 1928, when landing at Woolston in Southampton, England. She flew the Avro Avian 594 Avian III, owned by Lady Mary Heath, and later purchased the aircraft and had it shipped back to the United States where it was assigned unlicensed aircraft identification mark 7083. When the Stultz, Gordon, and Earhart flight crew returned to the United States, they were greeted with a ticker tape parade in New York, followed by a reception with President Calvin Coolidge at the White House. This was an amazing time for Earhart, and the bug for flying had taken her to places she never ever thought she could go. Trading on her physical re resemblance 
to Lindbergh, whom the press had dubbed Lucky Lindy. Some newspapers and magazines began referring to Earhart as Lady Lindy. The United Press was more opulent to them, calling Earhart the reigning queen of the air. Immediately after her return to the United States, she undertook an exhausting lecture tour from 1928 through 1929. Meanwhile, Putnam had undertaken to heavily promote her in a campaign, including publishing a book she authored, a series of new lecture tours, and using pictures of her in mass market endorsements for products including luggage, Lucky Strike cigarettes, this caused image problems for her with McCall's magazine retracting in previous offer because they were offended by the Lucky Strike advertisement, and women's clothing and sportswear. The money that she made with Lucky Strike had been earmarked for the 15 had been earmarked for a $1,500 donation to Commander Richard Byrd's imminent South Pole expedition. This marketing campaign by both Earhart and G.P. Putnam was successful in establishing the Earhart mystique in the public psyche. Rather than simply endorsing the products, Earhart actively became involved in the promotions, especially in women's fashion. For a number of years, she had sewn her own clothes, but the active living lines that were sold in 50 stores, such as Macy's, in the metropolitan areas, were an expression of a new Earhart image. Her concept of simple, natural lines matched with wrinkle-proof, washable materials was the embodiment of a sleek, purposeful, but feminine A.E. A.E., the familiar name she went by with family and friends, which stood for Amelia Earhart. The luggage line that she promoted, marketed as Modern Air Earhart Luggage, also bore her unmistakable stamp. She ensured that the luggage met the demands of air travel. Amazingly, it is still being produced today. A wide range of promotional items would appear bearing the Earhart image and likewise modern equivalents continue to be marketed. A more recent Gap khaki pants ad campaign in 1993 featured Earhart's likeness and was the start of additional modern revivals of her in advertising campaigns including Apple's computers Think Different advertising campaign in 1997.
the celebrity endorsements would help Earhart finance her flying. Accepting a position as associate editor at Cosmopolitan Magazine, she turned this forum into an opportunity to campaign for greater public acceptance of aviation, especially focusing on the role of women entering the field. In 1929, Earhart was among the first aviators to promote commercial air travel through development of a passenger airline service. Along with Charles Lindbergh, she represented Transcontinental Air Transport, known as TAT, and invested time and money in setting up the first regional shuttle service between New York and Washington, D.C. TAT would later become TWA. She was Vice President of National Airways, which conducted the flying operations of the Boston Maine Airways and several other airlines in the Northeast. By 1940, that airline had become known as Northeast Airlines. Although Earhart had gained fame for a transatlantic flight, she endeavored to set an untarnished record of her own. Shortly after her return, piloting an Avion 7083, she set off on her first long solo flight, which occurred just as her name was coming into the national spotlight. By making the trip in August 1928, Earhart became the first woman to fly solo across the North American continent and back. Gradually, her piloting skills and professionalism grew, as acknowledged by experienced professional pilots who flew with her. General Lee Wade flew with Earhart in 1929. He was quoted as saying, she was a born flyer with a delicate touch on the stick. Earhart subsequently made her first attempt at competitive air racing in 1929 during the first Santa Monica, California to Cleveland, Ohio Women's Air Derby, later nicknamed the Powder Puff Derby by Will Rogers. During the race, at the last intermediate stop before the finish in Cleveland, Earhart and her friend Ruth Nichols were tied for first place. Nichols was to take off right before Earhart, but her aircraft hit a tractor on the runway and flipped over. Instead of taking off, Earhart ran to the wrecked aircraft at the end of the runway 
and dragged her friend out. Only when she was sure that Nichols was uninjured did Earhart take off for Cleveland. But due to the time lost, saving her friend, she finished third. Her courageous act was symbolic of Earhart's selflessness. Typically, she rarely referred to the incident in later years. In 1930, Earhart became an official of the National Aeronautic Association, where she actively promoted the establishment of separate women's records and was instrumental in the Federation Aeronautique Internationale acceptance in a similar international standard. In 1931, flying a Pitcairn PCA-2 autogyro, she set a world altitude record of 18,415 feet in a borrowed airplane. While to a reader today, it might seem that Earhart was engaged in flying stunts, she was, with other female flyers, crucial to making the American public air-minded and convincing them that aviation was no longer just for daredevils and supermen. During this period, Earhart became involved with the 99s, an organization of female pilots providing moral support and advancing the cause of women in aviation. She had called a meeting of female pilots in 1929 following the Women's Air Derby. She suggested the name based on the number of her charter members, 99. She later became the organization's first president in 1930. Earhart was a vigorous advocate for female pilots and when the 1934 Bendex Trophy race banned women, she openly refused to fly screen actress Mary Pickford to Cleveland to open the races. For a while, Earhart was engaged to Samuel Chapman, a chemical engineer from Boston. Breaking off her engagement on November 23, 1928. During the same period, Earhart and Putnam had spent a great deal of time together, leading to a relationship. George P. Putnam, who was known as GP, was divorced in 1929 and sought out Earhart, proposing to her six times before she finally agreed. After substantial hesitation 
on her part. They married on February 7, 1931, in Putnam's mother's house in Noank, Connecticut. Earhart referred to her marriage as a partnership with dual control. In a letter written to Putnam and hand-delivered to him on the day of the wedding, she wrote, I want you to understand I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness, nor to me shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. Earhart's ideas on marriage were liberal for the time, as she believed in equal responsibilities for both breadwinners, and pointedly kept her own name rather than being referred to as Mrs. Putnam. When the New York Times, per, per the rules of its style book, insisted on referring to her as Mrs. Putnam, she laughed it off. GP also learned quite soon that he would be called Mr. Earhart. There was no honeymoon for the newlyweds, as Earhart was involved in a nine-day cross-country tour promoting autogyros and the tour sponsor Beechnut Chewing Gum. Although Earhart and Putnam had no children, he had two sons by his previous marriage to Dorothy Binney, a chemical heiress whose father's company, Binney and Smith, invented Crayola crayons. The explorer and writer David Binney Putnam and George Palmer Putnam Jr. were the children of GP. Earhart was especially fond of David, who frequently visited his father at their home in Rye, New York. George had contracted polio shortly after his parents' separation and was unable to visit as often. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet.
Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.